The QuackCast Revenant Edition. This is number 219 and is called Serologies. References are available over at Science-Based Medicine from the blog entry of the same title on December 15th, 2020. There are multiple ways to make the diagnosis of an infectious disease. The best is growing the organism from a sterile body fluid. Although it would appear that there is no such thing as a sterile body site. Bladder, lung, and perhaps even the brain have a non-pathogenic microbiome. The key word here is non-pathogenic. These organisms don't grow in routine cultures. Bacteria, including pathogens, occasionally transiently access the blood and show up in cultures that can be clinically meaningless. A true positive, as opposed to a contaminant, but an unimportant positive. Still, I like a positive culture. It sums up my concept of infectious diseases. Me find bug, me kill bug, me go home. Next down the list of diagnostic utility is finding DNA, RNA, or body parts of the organism in the blood or other bodily fluids. The former sometimes provides too much information and the latter can be problematic. As examples, cell-free microbial DNA assays can sometimes find DNA of multiple organisms in the blood, none of which were clinically expected or relevant. And as another example, the 1,3-beta-D-glucan, which detects a fungal body part, may be elevated when there's no fungal infection. Like every test, they have to be analyzed within the context of the clinical presentation. The most problematic way to make a diagnosis is serologies, measuring antibodies in the blood directed against an infection. There are generally two antibodies that are used to diagnose an infection. IgM, which is the first antibody class the immune system makes against an infection. It kicks in around day 5 to 10, peaks around 21 days, and is present in the blood for around 3 months, usually. There can be great variability depending on the infection, and IgMs are noted to be problematic. Quote, IgM tests also suffer disproportionately from false positive results, which can lead to misdiagnosis, inappropriate therapy, and premature closure of a diagnostic workup. IgG is another useful antibody. It kicks in around day 5 to 10 and lasts a lifetime. IgG is the antibody that can give lifelong protection and the antibody whose levels can be boosted with vaccine or with re-exposure to a pathogen. It is the only wing of the immune system that probably can be boosted. In infectious disease, IgA and IgG usually have no routine diagnostic utility. If you have a positive serology, then you must have the disease, right? I wish. There are several serologic scenarios that drive me bonkers. The first is Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. It is not uncommon for EBV serologies to be ordered in clinical situations that I call neutromatic medicine a clinical presentation that is almost, but not quite, entirely unlike EBV. You can fill in other pathogens for EBV. But it is remarkable how often tests are ordered when there is no clinical indication. Diseases have patterns. If the pattern is not that of, say, EBV, then do not order EBV serologies. Often EBV serologies are ordered in patients who have a fever and only a fever. None of the clinical features of EBV, like sore throat, enlarged lymph nodes, hepatitis, cytopenias, etc. And the test is positive. Then the patient is sent to me. 
Since most people are exposed to EBV when they are young, the majority of the population can have positive serologies. To complicate issues, EBV, like all herpes virus, persists in human cells. Unlike love, herpes viruses last a lifetime. When a process activates the immune system, it can also activate herpes virus replication, leading to a boost in higher titers of antibodies. I remember back when I was an intern, EBV, because of high EBV titers in chronic fatigue syndrome patients, was thought to be the cause of CFS rather than a marker of CFS, and not a good marker at that. I would like to say that those who order EBV serologies should be the ones required to interpret that serology, but so often the person ordering the tests is, well, let's just say lacking in a sophisticated understanding of Epstein-Barr virus. So, I get to tell the patient, the serologies are meaningless, since almost everyone has positive serologies. The test should not have been ordered in the first place. EBV has nothing to do with your usually resolved symptoms. Blah. Lyme testing is another problematic serology. Lyme testing has two steps. The first is the screening ELISA, which is meant to be overly sensitive. Then a confirmatory Western blot. There are many other Lyme tests, such as PCRs and antigen tests, and labs that offer their own in-house tests. Now, I've talked about this before. These are all problematic. Lyme testing, however, gets to the heart of the concept of prior plausibility in interpreting the results of a serologic test. There is zero Borrelia in the Willamette Valley. None. Zilch. Nada. Nil. At least as of now. I mean, who knows about the future? One of the consequences of climate change is the range of infectious vectors is changing. The ticks that spread Lyme and other diseases are spreading north and east, so perhaps Borrelia will migrate to the Great Pacific Northwest someday. And pathogens can spread due to human behavior, such as Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever in Arizona, which was due to pet dogs. Pathogens get around sometimes by the damnedest methods. So you can never be 100% sure that this wasn't some weird method by which an infection was acquired. Still, every test has a false positive and a false negative rate. It is one of the annoying characteristics about serologies. The results are not black and white, but shades of gray. I sometimes wonder about the sensitivity of some tests. For example, the urine antigen test is used to diagnose histoplasmosis, and it was developed from a strain out of India. Strains in the Caribbean, which are somewhat antigenically different, can be missed with this test. For some organisms, the farther away you are from the index strain, the more genetically separate they become. It's quite dramatic with malaria, where Pio Valley in Asia looks and acts identical to Pio Valley in Africa, but the two cannot mate. Classic Darwinian. And this may, may, may be true of Lyme as well as the further you get from the index Borrelia from the northeast, the more antigenic distance you see. Does this make a difference in testing? I don't know about strains in the U.S., but the U.S. test for Lyme is not as accurate for detecting European Borrelia. And then there is the potential for cross-reacting with other spirochetes such as syphilis and relapsing fever. Lyme serology, like other serologies, is not as simple as one would like. It is compounded by the fact that, like EBV serologies, they are ordered when they shouldn't be, like naturopaths. For example, the patient lives and works in suburban Portland and has not left the area for a couple of years. 
he does find a tick after yard work, which he notices immediately and removes the tick. That happened to me this summer as well. I found two ticks on my abdomen the day after trimming bushes. Gives me the willies. Ticks and leeches. Ugh. The second most horrifying scene in the movies is when Bogart has to remove all those leeches in the African Queen. The worst? Maybe because I was just a kid when I saw it, but the amputation scene in Gone with the Wind. Ugh. But, as usual, I digress. As mentioned, there is no lime in Oregon, and the tick has to feed for at least four hours before passing on lime. So no reason whatsoever to test for lime. But the patient asks his primary physician for testing, and money is wasted when it comes back negative. At least the patient did not see an ND, short for not a doctor, who loved to send off non-standard lime testing that often comes back false positive. But that is a story for another day. But the patient has some vague orthopedic complaints. Muscle and joint aches that are new in his 50s. Just wait until you hit your 60s. I do not think I have a single part of my body that doesn't ache. Maybe my hair. And that's just because I do not have much. Anyway, six months in, because of the symptoms, the patient requests further testing. So a very much not indicated western blot is ordered. Really, you might as well just burn a stack of dollar bills. The Western blot was negative for IgG and positive for IgM. He has Lyme. Nap. First, if this were Lyme, which it isn't, the blot would be consistent with acute Lyme. Six months in, the IgG should be positive. It isn't. And the IgM Western blot is notable for false positives. More importantly, a positive test done in a patient with no risk is going to be a false positive. That's the SBM part of this podcast. In trying to figure out what a Lyme serology or other serology means, you have to know not only the sensitivity, specificity, false positive, and false negative rates of the test, you need to know the prevalence of the disease. And with Lyme, the added complexity of the operational characteristics of the test also depends on the stage of the disease. So, how to put that information at work? Well, wiser heads than I have discussed this, for example. I am lazy, and statistics, especially Bayes' theorem, makes my brain hurt. And you can plug the information into formula and do calculations yourself. But it is the concept I want to emphasize. When the incidence of a disease is low, most serologic positives are false positives. As the incidence of disease falls in the community, the more likely a positive serology is a false positive and the patient does not have the disease. But it is even simpler in Oregon. No Lyme in Oregon equals no Lyme in the patient. So I explained to the patient why the result was meaningless and he should never have asked his doctor for Lyme testing. The doctor should not have ordered the test. When I get these requests, as I do occasionally, I tell the patient I am not a drive-up window at McDonald's, unless they want an Oreo McFlurry. This is contrasted with the patient I saw the same week who, after a tick bite in Connecticut, the state, not a nickname for a body part, three months ago now has a Bell's palsy. I didn't need Lyme testing to know what the patient had. Not all serologies are as problematic as Lyme, but it is remarkable how often I see serologies ordered in patients that have almost zero risk for the disease. If I were a patient, I would be pissed if part of my copay was for completely 
useless test. A couple of years ago, I was admitted for less than 24 hours for small bowel obstruction. My bill was $10,000. I had to write a check for 10% of that. I looked over my charges and there was nothing on the list that I considered inappropriate. But if I had to pay even 10 bucks for an unneeded Lyme test, I would be pissed. Ordering tests can be a waste of money and time that only adds confusion to the case and an unneeded ID consult. Although I wonder about the unneeded. Some days I think all ID diagnostics and therapeutics should require ID prior authorization. I have this recurring nightmare where oncology is approached like infectious diseases. Multiple fear-driven therapies given in the absence of appropriate diagnostics. Lyme and EBV are not the only serologies that give me a headache. Syphilis? <sighs> that would be a podcast entry in itself to go through all the issues with that infection. But the take-home, a positive serology for an infectious disease may be meaningless. And if there's no disease in the community, a positive is a false positive. And this ends the Goblet of Pus Revenant Edition, number 219. References are available at Science-Based Medicine from the December 15th, 2022 blog entry of the same name, Serologies. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. Bye.